Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. This show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at theluepodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef at the 82nd Airborne Division and U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law, Universe, and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Today's episode is brought to you by Prosperitas, an animated video agency that can help you bring your company's ideas, values, products, and messages to life with the power of visual storytelling. Whether you strive to win more customers, engage, or educate your audience, Prosperitas will craft each video specifically targeted to fit your brand and vision. Visit ProsperitasAgency.com today to learn more. That's P-R-O-S-P-E-R-I-T-A-S agency.com to find out how Prosperitas can create the best videos your company has ever had. My guest today is Rachel Zur. As a 10-year magazine editor with an MFA in creative nonfiction writing, Clear writing has been Rachel's specialty for years. Yet while working with expert contributors as the editor of Conscious Company Magazine, she saw time and again how people could be brilliant and articulate in their work and somehow a confusing mess on the page. What's your elevator pitch, she'd ask a CEO. Eight minutes later, they'd still be getting to the point. Rachel wants businesses with soul to win in the marketplace. To do that, they need clear communication. So after years of business leaders telling her that's the clearest anyone's ever explained it, she knew it was time to switch hats from journalist to marketer and from editor to copywriter. She'd watched too many companies struggle to attract the customers they deserved. It felt like her calling to help. That's why she founded Magic Words Marketing. As a copywriter, messaging coach, and story brand guide, she helps purposeful businesses find the magic words to grow. Thank you so much for joining me today, Rachel, and welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So we saw a little bit of it in the intro there, but tell me a little bit more about what inspired you to become a copywriter. Yeah, there there was definitely a journey here for me. And I think probably the me of about 10 years ago would have cringed at the idea of being a marketer. I had a lot of my identity wrapped up in the snazziness and of respect of getting to be a journalist. There's, I think there's a couple kinds of journalists. There's like a New York Times, Pulitzer Prize, hard-winning investigative journalists, which I never was. And then there's um, journalists who tell stories and help teach and inspire people, which I definitely was for a long time, first at Backpacker Magazine and um, Wired and then Conscious Company. But in about middle of 2018, my life was going through some dramatic transformations. I was leaving a marriage I'd been in for a long time and just really yeah, developing in a lot of different ways, the dark night of the soul. And I decided to leave the magazine that I was the editor of, which was in some ways an amazing job. I got to connect with really amazing purpose-driven businesses and learn a ton and meet amazing people, but my, my heart just wasn't fully in it. And I took the leap to find my no to that and um, 
went to my CEO and I was single-handedly making this magazine. And I said to her, I, I don't know how to fix this, but I just don't really want to be here anymore. What do we need to do to transition me out? And I was imagining it might take six months because of how much I was doing. One of the most loving things anyone has ever done for me. <laughs> she came back a day or two later and was just, just go, we'll figure it out. Finish this next issue of the magazine and, and we'll hire someone else and do what you need to do. A few months later, I was on the road to a vision quest in south, Southern Utah with a school called the Animus Valley Institute. And almost two years literally wandering, I moved into an RV with my partner at the time and we wandered around the West and just really trying to, to settle into a question that a coach of mine helped me articulate, which was how to give my gifts in a way that... And as I started just listening to what was feeling easy and emergent in the work I was doing, I, I emailed some of the folks I'd had the most fun working with at the magazine. Uh, saying, do you need any, do you need help with anything you think I'd be good at? And the answer was yes, for most of the people I emailed. And I, I ended up helping one former collaborator who became a client help work on a book for most of 2019 and was helping some other folks just think through how to communicate better for their business. So the marketing things are slowly started emerging. And, and then in early 2020, I came across the story brand framework and it felt like this just giant aha moment of a missing puzzle piece that combined some things I was already good at, but also gave me um, some confidence and framework to know that I wouldn't just be good at helping people say things, but say things in a way that was really effective for their marketing. So I had a lot of really, I'm going to do this. This is what I'm going to be now. But I, it was totally impossible to ignore the amount of joy that I was getting in basically doing the puzzle of, of helping people communicate their message in the storytelling framework that StoryBrand uses. And so I just was, yeah, if I found something that people will pay for that brings me this much joy and excitement, who am I not to do that? So, so I did. It's been a little less than a year and it's been an amazing ride beyond what I could have expected so far. That's awesome. So tell me a little bit more about your experience becoming and practicing as a story brand certified guide. Let's see. Like I said, I decided to take the leap to become a guide because I was already in love with doing the work <laughs> I had before I was certified. I was applying it to everything left and right in my life and all my friends' businesses and just getting so much joy out of it. So I decided to really dive in. And I learned a little bit more about the framework and how people use it. But I would say the biggest thing I've learned in the last year is how important role models and community can be in creating a business and doing a good job for people and pushing beyond my own edges. I've had, I just, I can't even fathom how much I've learned in the last year about things like value pricing that I'd never heard of, or just smart business fundamentals around how to sell things to people in a way that isn't sleazy. And and then also writing tricks as well. I, I've been studying more and more about copywriting, but I'll say that both for myself and for the, the types of clients I tend to help, the, the things I've learned about entrepreneurship and about creating a business that helps you balance what you love and your package, your, sorry, your passion that you feel like you're here to give the world and having a life that um, works for you. I'm still, it's definitely still a balance I'm mastering, but I, I feel like as much as the copywriting, that is part of what I'm learning and, and getting ready to share more and more with the world. And it is, it is stuff I share with some of my clients already, depending on where they are in their business journeys. But. And so on the business owner side, what are some of the most important lessons you've learned actually being a solopreneur? Yeah, great question. I, there's a few resources and lessons. What, one is the profit first method which is the name of a book by a guy named Mike Michalowicz, who's on a mission to help entrepreneurs not burn out and be truly successful. 
And it's this, um, this way of doing accounting, which sounds super boring, but one, he's a great writer. So if you check out the book, it's amusing the whole way through and just really helps you think about building a business that doesn't just have a lot of revenue flowing through, but actually is very smart about creating profit. And the metaphor he uses at the beginning of the book that was so useful to me is this idea of when you have a tube of toothpaste that's almost empty, you get so creative and willing to do with a little bit less about getting the last of it out versus when you have a tube of toothpaste that's totally full, you're not really needing to be innovative or creative or just our brains don't really worry about conserving for most people. And so he, it's this method of thinking through your business for that lets you basically create that the feeling of the empty tube toothpaste for yourself in service of creating a very sustainable, profitable business. So that's one resource that has been, I don't think I would have discovered without the story brand community that introduced it to me and has been really helpful. And then one other just very quick lesson that has been huge for me that I learned from a woman named Erica Bryant, who's another story brand guide, this idea of always be scheduled, um, which is when working, whether it's a client or a prospect or any, if you're in any kind of service business, we're showing up with people is part of what you're doing. It is much easier and so important to keep the momentum going if you just always know when you're meeting next, even if it's three months from now, you just completed a project and it need, they need time to get decided on the next thing. That just being really, really rigorous about not leaving calls without having the next call scheduled, even if you're not entirely sure what it's for, just getting 15 minutes on the calendar to check in, so much can come of that. And then since I've started doing that in my own business, I've also seen just in my life, I was working with an Ayurvedic coach and somehow we got off one of our sessions without scheduling the next one. And I still haven't scheduled another one three months later. And that wasn't because I made any kind of conscious decision that I wanted to stop working with her. It was just like, we didn't have it scheduled. So we lost the momentum. So those are one really simple thing and one a little more complex. Mm, very powerful. So there's been a huge sort of rise and influx of new technologies that are, I think, somewhat either seeking to augment, assist, or in some cases, even replace copywriters. And what are your thoughts on AI eating copywriting as a discipline? Yeah, that's a good question. So I've tried some of the AI copywriters. Um, and I don't know, I don't like them that much. But I also am not your typical writer. I am somebody who has been writing as my full time job for the last uh, 13 years. And so and for whom it comes really naturally. And I actually I have a story that AI copywriters will replace a lot of, really help a lot of people and replace a lot of writing at the 80th percentile of quality. <laughs> and and I don't think that they're likely to, which is enough for many circumstances. And I, I don't think people should spend their time banging their head against something they hate and are bad at. So if somebody has a reason they need to create some content and they don't, and they really don't like writing and that bank blank page just gives them the sweats, like go for it. And I also really truly believe that we're never gonna completely get rid of the human touch in writing. There's just a level of creativity and discernment. And like I said, that the kind of the nuance of, I was doing the math, I don't even know why, I was doing the math the other day of what it would be, what does it mean to be in the top 1% of something given how many people there are in the US? And I realized that just, approximately it was like the top several hundred thousand i was like yeah i would say i'm probably in the top one percent of writers in this country without needing to be terribly egotistical it's like i've been published in a lot of magazines and things like that it's and i don't know that ai copywriting is going to replace that the last few percent there but there's a lot of circumstances where that quality isn't actually that necessary so i think it depends on um 
depends on your purpose, your outcome, and you know what it looks like. I don't, I'm not too worried about getting replaced, but but I'm actually really excited for business owners or bloggers who need who need words. I'd way rather see somebody pay 50 bucks a month for an AI blog writer than be paying somebody $10 a blog because that's just sweatshop. And I don't, I know people say yes to that, but I don't want anyone saying yes to that. Um, so, yeah. So I know you work, a, you try and work a lot with conscious capitalism focused companies. And how do you determine whether somebody really fits the bill for you as the right client and that they're meeting those, those goals and aspirations that you have, you hold? I love that question because it's super not simple. There are some shortcuts to it. Things like B Corp certification or being incorporated as a public benefit corporation, which is a legal way people can incorporate in many states and some countries that changes their obligations to legally require them to, you're the lawyer here, but to <laughs> legally require them to take into account things beyond shareholder profit in their business. Being a member affiliated with conscious capitalism is another shortcut, but there, I, I discovered while publishing the magazine about called conscious company that was about this quote unquote conscious business, that there's not, um, you know, there's a lot of different keywords or organizations or umbrella organizations, but there are so many people out there in the world who are practicing forms of what I would consider to be conscious businesses or businesses with soul that I do want to support <clears throat> that would never identify that way. That I might look at at the outside and say, you're doing this, but plenty of folks don't. So for me, my guidelines that I've come up with is at the very least, <laughs> I need to be working with people who treat their customers really well and their employees as well. It's basically about what is more important to you, that there is something that people are up to that's beyond just making money. That money is a, a fuel for the vehicle, but it's not the destination. And so there's a lot of small businesses. I did some copywriting as a subcontractor for another story brand guide for a window treatment store in Pennsylvania. I probably wouldn't identify as a conscious business, but when I looked at all their customer reviews, there was just hundreds of people raving about the quality of service and experience they had with these folks. And it, it had me be willing to put my time and energy into supporting them. And I notice my values around this because I get super angry when I watch businesses who don't do it this way. So as best as I can tell, it's businesses who treat both their customers and their employees and ideally all their stakeholders. That's like officially the conscious capitalism point of view is this idea of treating your stakeholders really well and taking all stakeholders into account. But the ones that are easiest to see are employees and customers. And that's a bar for entry to me that you, you know, that you'd rather work on a long-term relationship with somebody than where you would never sacrifice that for a short-term making a dollar right now. Totally. So how have you found mentors and advisors throughout your career? How have I found them? That's a great question. I... I find a lot of my mentors and advisors have come from people. I, I often first meet them. Yeah, that's a yeah. You got me stumped here. I'm trying to think. I have there's a couple I'm thinking of, and I'm trying to think how did I find them. A few of them I got to work with, not as employees of the same organization, but I was in a very cool position as the editor of the magazine about conscious business of having reason to talk to a lot of people, um, who who were you know, doing work that I was really impressed by and that I had the opportunity to share with our readers. So a couple of my mentors have come through that. I got to say, honestly, a lot of it's synchronicity. Also just following who everyone, people around me are raving at. That's, that's some of it as well. And seeing who shows up and contributes in spaces I'm in, in ways that I begin to really trust them and their opinions on things. And then, yeah, there, there's basically, I think, okay, after all that rambling, I'm going to say, watching people who show up in a way that I 
aspire to or want to show up and who already are being in a way that I want to be or doing in a way that I want to do. And then, and then showing up around them too, showing up to listen and learn and putting my work in before asking for any special access of just really being a super fan, if you will. Awesome. So what is one of the best or most worthwhile investments that you've ever made? And feel free to interpret the word investments as broadly as you like. I would say one of the investments that has definitely had the biggest return on ROI for me was um, I got a taste of learning meditation back in 2014 at a retreat I went on. And I had somebody on a retreat guiding me through meditation every day for a week. And I'd thought about meditating before that, but never had really. And it was so cool to, to get the support I needed to do it every day for those seven days. And I, but I didn't know how to keep it going. And somebody suggested to me the Headspace app, which is still an app that's around on you know, iPhones and Androids and they gave you 10 days free, but then it was at the time, I believe it was like $80 for a year. And I think it's the same or less now. And I will say spending $80 for a year of meditation coaching, <laughs> which I did for a couple of years before I moved on into other things. But when I think about money spent versus leverage it's had in changing my life and also something that anyone else could go invest in right now, they wanted, it would be hard to beat that actually with the amount of deep profound shift that has come into my world because of that meditation practice, that very well-designed app helped me cultivate because all you need to do is commit to showing up and sitting down. And there was a lot of gamification that helped me make that commitment as well. It's a great answer. So in the last five years, what new belief behavior or habit has most improved your life? Hmm. I would say this is one of the core things that has really shaped me in the last few years, which is consulting my whole body's intelligence as I'm making decisions big and small. One of the mentors I was speaking about earlier is a woman named Diana Chapman, who is one of the co-founders of the Conscious Leadership Group. They have a book called The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership, but they teach, this is something I learned from her, they teach a practice called The Whole Body Yes, and they have a meditation to help guide you through finding yours, but it's basically a practice of really checking in with your head, your heart, your gut, like all the sensations in your body, and knowing the difference between when your whole body is saying, yay, yes, if you think about joyful awesome moment in your life and you feel like what it feels like in your body that's a good indicator of a whole body yes and if you think about something like going to the dentist or something you just hate to see on your calendar and notice what happens in the sensations in your body that's a clue of what a no feels like in your body and starting to tune into that intelligent making for me it started as a practice of tuning into that with really small decisions what am i going to order on this menu or what am i going to wear right now or which pen am I going to buy at the store? And then grew into bigger experiments. Like I, I one time um, just really committed to listening to that. I just set off in my car one day and I had no idea where I was going. And I just listened to the subtle intelligence of my body when, it, you know, do I get off at this exit? Keep going straight. Okay. Do I get off at this exit? And just had a whole adventure of a day in, um, completely surrendering to that with low stakes. There was no major life decisions, but in training that for years and years, that helped me, has helped me make some pretty big decisions based on, based on starting to more and more trust the wisdom of my body and also not forcing myself, being willing to say no to things that I'm not, that I don't have a yes to. It's been a huge part of that practice as well. So for me, that looks clients or even saying no to just the other day, my um, 
best friends asked me to babysit my godson on, on a day I had off. And um, I love babysitting that kid. And I haven't in a while. And my head kept saying, yeah, I should totally do that. And my body was saying, oh, no, you need a break. You need a break. You need a break. And so having the courage to, to listen to that no, but also follow those yeses, I would say, is one of, one of the big things that has changed my life in a lot of ways. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, a book we have talked with several people on the show about is, uh, if you've heard of it, is The Body Keeps the Score. Oh, yeah. And so it's really just all about how it's all whatever you're trying to repress or any positive or negative stuff, like it all ends up there. And you know, and that's what I think like the really simplified way that just like exercise is so powerful because we put so much of our stress and things like in our body. And so if you don't move it around or anything like that, and you start, you know, pulling muscles and having back failure, other stuff, it's just, it's all really psychosomatic at a certain level where people really don't like to hear that like their problems are all in their head, but that's really where we're generating everything from. And then the body just takes the brunt of what we put into it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I do, I will say there's just, as you were talking, I thought about one additional trick I've been using more just in the last year around helping myself find my, what's really true for me. Cause sometimes a decision is really hard and I, and there's a lot of different forces. Like I just recently have been in the real, like on the market for house hunting and oh my gosh, there's big decisions you need to make quickly. <laughs> Am I going to invest a huge amount of money in, the next who knows how many years of my life in this and they just keep going and so there's also a trick i have for helping myself get clearer on what's really alive in me which is i call it a decision grid and i just take a piece of scrap paper and draw you know an x in the middle so that it's divided into four quadrants and i label one uh, desire for yes and then the next one fear of yes and then the next one desire for no and fear of no with whatever the decision is so it's a yes or no decision and then I list out why are the reasons I wanted, why are the reasons I'm scared of doing this? Why are the reasons I don't want to do this? What are the reasons I'm scared of not doing this? And that could be an exercise that helps your head decide. But for me, as I do it, I, I tend to generally get to feel what it feels like in my body in each of those quadrants. And often it's very clarifying about what's really here and where my, where my, where, which quadrant feels the most alive or yeah. So that's another tool I've been using lately around that whole body. Yes. Oh, very cool. What advice would you give to a smart, driven high school or college graduate about to enter the real world? And is there any advice you think they should ignore? I would give them, I would give them advice about a lot of the stuff I already talked about. <laughs> I would give them advice to start meditating. I think that's good for everyone in terms of practicing being human. A good antidote to some of the uh, speediness of our culture. I would give them the advice to start really practicing using their intuition and leaning into like their true yeses and nos, which, which will be more reliable than, than what their heads are saying or just their heads are saying. Heads are great. It's just, you know, they're only a part of the puzzle. I would give them the advice to, I mean, I do give a lot of younger folks this advice is just to not worry that you have to have it figured out so quickly that there's no, yeah, that just, it's allowed to emerge. And I remember feeling like I was supposed to be farther than I was when I was that age. And for me, my whole life always makes so much more sense in retrospect, but than it does going forward. So yeah, just looking for the next best thing and trusting their internal inner knowing without needing to know what the whole five or 10 year plan looks like. And I do think there's value in, in looking ahead towards goals, but not everyone works that way <laughs> uh, quite so clearly. And, and there's a lot of ways to miss what's, what's right in front of you. So being willing to only to, to just know what the next best step is and not need to have it all figured out. 
So are there any bad recommendations that you hear in your profession or area of expertise? I think there are bad recommendations and that there are recommendations that pretend to be one size fits all. I don't, yeah, my sense is the thing that seems the, the worst to me is this idea that you need to do it a certain way, even if you hate that. And I, the business owners I work with, I, I very much believe that there's some best practices out there and, and general rules of thumb and things that are likely to work better than others. But at the end of the day, like it's really important to keep in mind why we're doing things. And if there's a solopreneur who really just has a passionate dislike of something or, or finds it, you know, morally objectionable to sell in a particular way, it's then let's not do that. Don't occasionally there's a time where a time and a place where I think that there may be some hidden shadow in those fear. And I might push my clients to, to look at what, where the script comes from and the story comes from that has them having so much aversion to a particular thing. But in general, I think, um, yeah, the idea that you, that there's one way to do things and that you have to do it a certain way. And if that way doesn't feel good to you and too bad, you should do it anyway. I think that's terrible advice. I think finding that intersection between what's worked in the past and what feels good to you now and most importantly, what's going to work for you going forward is, is by far the most important. Definitely. So in the last five years, what have you become better at saying no to? <laughs> Everything. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've become better at saying no to to filling up my time more than feels good. Still definitely a, warning, a work, work in progress, but to overscheduling myself to working on projects that don't excite me. I've been better at saying no to undervaluing my own skills and my own time. Yeah, I'll leave that there. Cool. So how has a failure or an apparent failure set you up for later success? And do you have a favorite failure? Mm. <laughs> That's a great question. I will say, yeah, this is something I've been... <laughs> I wish I had a better, clearer story available right now. I will say that at the beginning of 2018, my New Year's resolution was to attract failure and rejection as a way of learning to celebrate it more. And then immediately, a day or two after New Year's, I, I happened to be traveling in Myanmar and my partner who I was there with and I were on a motorbike touring around and the motorbike broke down and I had this new intention. So I really... Um, promised myself to celebrate it. And what came out of it was we got to spend, I don't know, half an hour, not that long, but with this family on the side of the road at a place we never would have stopped between destinations um, and really get this quite memorable and poignant experience of being invited into their property and seeing how they'd constructed their life. And yeah, and pretty soon everything was resolved, but we had this kind of cultural interaction with people we never would have if we hadn't broken down in that moment in that place. And I have, I'm sure I have many other better stories than that one about ways that failures have created great things. But I, I do have a practice that I learned from a woman named Melissa Pay, who um, has a lot of books out. And sh she has a practice of saying, I can't wait to see what good will come out of this whenever something goes wrong. So I've been trying to to do that for a number of years. And, and there's usually, there's usually something pretty awesome. So that was just a quick minor silly story. I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's other ones, but that's, yeah. I also was a person who for a really long time was very allergic to failure. It felt incredibly threatening to me and my ego. I was privileged to have a mind that worked really well with tests and school and those structures and didn't have to face all that much failure as a kid in that way. And have only in my adult years come to, to learn its potency and resilience and, and not need to avoid it so hard. 
So. Mm. Oh, I love that answer. So beyond the ones you mentioned earlier, what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? Probably the easiest one to say is The Artist Way, which is a 12-week workbook of regaining creativity and reclaiming your um, inner artist, which uh, part of her hypothesis is that we all have inner artists. I don't know if you can imagine a three or four-year-old who wasn't creative in some way. And so we all, we learn to repress those parts of ourselves. And I've done that program a couple different times in my life and both times it has been incredibly influential and transformative and I recommend it to many people and it's a book that's been out for 25 years and has a huge passionate following so that's one of them I mentioned soft hand but I'll say it again because it, I think it deserves that also the 15 commitments of conscious leadership is definitely a life guide that I have been learning to live by over the last four years or so it's a big one that you know is really accessible but very profound challenging concepts on, on really rethinking the way we relate to life within work workplaces and, and beyond. I'll leave it at those two for now. If you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say and why? Something that I have written on sticky notes or it's currently in dry erase marker on my in my kitchen is everything is working out perfectly. And mm. for me, I realized that can be confronting and feel uh, really painful in a difficult situation or where things feel like anything. But I don't, don't have a lot of religious background, but in terms of just a, a faith or a mindset. But I, I find that if I can just keep remembering to put that lens on whatever's happening in my life, that in the way we were talking about celebrating failures, but if I choose to see it from that point of view, I like what happens better than if I choose not to. So I think, and I think that a lot of conflict and drama and pain could be avoided if not that we don't have preferences and not that means we need to accept everything as it is and, and not change. There's obviously a lot of things that um, I would change in the world, <laughs> a lot of injustices and other such things. But I do think that point of view of taking every moment as a perfect starting point for whatever's coming next is pretty profound. Mm. I love that. So something you mentioned earlier, just in passing that I'd love to know more about if you're willing is, could you tell me a bit more about this vision quest? Yeah, I'd love to. I first encountered this school called the Animus Valley Institute a few years ago through a, a friend I knew. And it uh, was founded by a man named Bill Plotkin, who has written quite a few books. It would be a good place to start if somebody wanted to. He has a new one out that I don't, I'm not as familiar with, but the one I started with is called Soulcraft. And this school runs quests all over the world, really, but especially in the U.S. that are designed to help people. So Bill Plotkin has this whole map of what he calls soul-centric development, that, you know, a wheel of life of the opportunities for ways that humans can grow and mature. And in this map, most people today, in at least in U.S. culture, are, are stuck in an adolescent place, even as adults, our culture is stuck in an adolescent place along this map of maturity. These quests are really designed to help facilitate people through to um, a deep transformation and, and hearing a call of their, way he characterizes it, of their soul, their kind of deep purpose here in life. Every plant and animal also has, they just don't have to think about it as hard. And so these journeys <clears throat> that they run are, I thought they were brilliantly done. I've spent a lot, I, mean, I used to be an editor at Backpacker Magazine. I've spent 
hundreds of night in the wilderness, but the, the 12 nights I spent with Animus Valley Institute absolutely changed the way I relate to the whole world and the natural world. And it was, we had a pretty good time of um, preparation and then a four days fast and solo time out in nature with a lot of self-created ceremony and guidance ahead of time preparing us to go in and then some integration time. And I've, I've done a bunch of other courses with that school as well, but so I definitely recommend if anyone's curiosity is piqued that the books are a great place to start or they have a website and they're offering a bunch of free online things right now. So low stakes to check it out. But yeah, it's very much like a nature-based hmm, reclaiming connection to ourselves in the natural world and, and with the goal of helping people develop through phases of maturity that are hard to find in our dominant culture. And then I, I will say I'm still working on it. It's definitely working <laughs> Oh, that sounds really cool. I'll check that out. So who have been some of your heroes throughout your life and how did they help or inspire you? Mm -hmm. Heroes throughout my life. That's a great question. I'll say that I feel a little repetitive here, but I definitely have one of my heroes, I would say, is a woman who has also been, I've been lucky enough to have as my coach and mentor over the years, but this woman, Diana Chapman, who is the leader of the conscious, one of the founders of the conscious leadership group. And I've been so inspired by how she can have uh, a life that was very successful on paper, our society's standards of success and, and lots of influence in the world, while also being deeply committed to a very radical practice of responsibility and taking responsibility for her whole experience in the world and curiosity and inquiry. And she's one of my heroes just because she's one of the happiest people I've ever connected with, who's also in, is doing incredibly deep spiritual work, but is also still very, very much in the world as well. And I really admired the way that she's managed to blend, blend those kind of following her calling with not being up on a mountaintop alone. And there's a question she asks that sticks with me a lot, which is, what are you willing to risk for your full aliveness? And she's one of the people I've known who's personally, who's risked a ton for her full aliveness and and has the results on the other side of kind of the beautiful life you get to create for that. I mean, there's some kind of more, Julio has always been a hero of mine, just the potency of her words. Joanna Macy, the work she's done around eco. Yeah, and it's funny that I'm feeling, this feels like a hard question to answer for some reason. So maybe I'll just leave it with those. No, that was great. So aside from meditation, uh, what are some of your other go-to self-care strategies, tactics, or techniques? Yeah, taking a walk is probably the biggest one. Setting timers to help myself remember to get up. I, I don't know if folks may have heard of the Pomodoro productivity method, which is where you basically set 25-minute timers. And I think the idea is to help you do a sprint of really focusing if you have trouble focusing. But for me, it's more of... Um, keeping myself from sitting still for three hours at a time without, which I will definitely do. I almost every week spend an hour and a half in a flotation, sensory deprivation flotation tank. Uh, nice. That's a really fairly new one. I do yoga pretty regularly. Yeah. Just taking breaks to laying down and doing nothing for a few minutes is really good for my nervous system. Yeah. I haven't floated in forever. I had a great float studio when I was in law school. It was like nearby in, in Newport beach. And it was just like, pretty inexpensive and they had like huge tanks they could fit like a nfl lineman <laughs> some athletes or something that come down there but oh man i miss that so much it's so good <laughs> yeah yeah i definitely really like my local 
exploitation tank here in Boulder. It's called that. My favorite is Isolate, if anyone is, is in this area. Yeah, and they also had this, I don't know if you've ever seen one of these things. It's wild. So it's called a Pandora Star machine. <laughs> and it's basically, it's like a strobe. It looks like a Star of David almost. Like it has like bulbs and interlocking triangle formations. Mm-hmm. And so basically like you lay down. You can do it seated, but like in this setup, like you would lay down, you'd put on these headphones that essentially had what I assume are like binaural beats, but really it's just some sort of soundtrack that's linked with the lights, like ambient, whatever. And they'd have different ones that were like anywhere from, I don't know, like 10 or 15 minutes, like 45 minutes. And as you listen to it, you would keep your eyes closed and then it would strobe really bright light on you and what i didn't realize until i did this is that your pineal gland is photosensitive that's actually part of why like your head hurts when you first go outside into like bright light it's actually you're like your pineal gland like re- reacting to that and it basically makes you have like crazy visuals like with your eyes closed and so for me like i have aphantasia so i just see jet black when i close my eyes and unless I'm on some sort of like psychedelic or something. And so this is actually the only time other than some like really deep meditative stuff I've done where I've actually been able to see stuff with my eyes closed. And you'll think, yeah, you think you're like tripping balls. And it's literally just this light strobing on you. It's so wild. Hmm. I have and no- it's so relaxing. The first time I did that, I found it was better to do that and then go and float. But the first time I did it, I floated. And he's like, hey, you want to try this thing? After I was done, I was like, sure. And I shit you not, like I walked out of that session, like probably the most blissed out I've ever been in my entire life. It was just like I had reached a different plane and I was like, what just happened? And it was like my body. I can't think of a time my body has ever been that relaxed just all through. Yeah. And I've I then was just like, I have to find because I've never seen them anywhere else. And, but I know they're out there, right? Like somebody, they didn't just make one. And I then found the company in the UK. And then I was just like, oh my God, I have to buy this. And then I found out they're like $5,000. And so I was like, oh, I'd have to like do this and just start charging people to come to my house and do it or something like that. But <laughs> yeah, I've always just like, oh, that's one of those like big splurges someday. I'm just like, yeah, I need my own Pandora star. Cause it's like, just like a trance meditation machine. It's so wild. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it's super dope. Definitely, definitely Google the Pandora Star meditation machine or whatever it's called. It's it's really cool. It's fascinating. So, Rachel, this has been a really fun and enlightening conversation. It does bring me to my last question of the day. And that is, what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? There are two answers that come to mind. One of them I already told the story of, which was my boss very much putting me ahead of her fear when I told her I felt the need to leave our magazine, but that I was committed to staying as long as it took to make that a healthy transition. I, it does feel like one of the more, the more loving and kind things anyone's ever done to me was to just to get over her fear and say, you do you, like, we'll figure this out. And then the other is just, it's definitely got to be just the love of and support of my parents. I feel like I've been in the life of a young child. I'm not a parent myself, but I've been in the life of a young child very intimately the last year and a half since my godson was born and the first lessons I learned from that was just like oh my gosh every human who's adult who's walking around today like had this much attention and care like I have a whole new level of appreciation of just how much gratitude we all owe our parents to varying degrees but that I in particular feel for my parents and they continue to support me in all kinds of major ways even when they 
don't always understand entirely what I'm up to, that they continue to be incredibly supportive and so just their love throughout my life would be the other. It's beautiful. Thank you so much for joining me today, Rachel. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to speak with you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me and, and for having such thought provoking questions. Oh, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> Today's episode was brought to you by Prosperitas, making unforgettable videos for unforgettable companies. Visit ProsperitasAgency.com today to learn more. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the LUE Podcast or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. And if you'd like to support this show even further, I'd love to invite you to become a patron of the show. For as little as $5 per month, you can help us continue to produce high-quality shows with amazing guests like you heard today. To become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash theluepodcast. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Pacifico Soldati. Wishing you peace, love, and awesomeness.